Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to the Ideas Roadshow podcast. I'm Howard Burton, your host and creator of Ideas Roadshow, and I'm delighted to be partnering with the New Books Network to offer you our uniquely eclectic blend of long-format conversations with a wide array of experts across many different subjects. The following discussion is a reformatted podcast version of one of Ideas Roadshow's first 100 film conversations that's also available in video and print formats. Visit ideasroadshow.com for more details. What is politics anyway? How can we, or should we, understand what being political really means? That's a question that's long intrigued UC Berkeley historian Martin Jay, who's made a habit of occupying himself with intriguing questions on the overlap of social theory, cultural criticism, and intellectual history. In this conversation, I spoke to Martin about his book, The Virtues of Mendacity, on lying and politics, and his efforts to get a deeper understanding of the political realm by examining to what extent the act of lying in politics is both different and similar to other domains of human activity. I do actually want to talk about aspects of intellectual history and your interests and so forth. So we're going to hopefully move uh, in that direction. But if I can start right off with the virtues of mendacity and talk about the motivations and inclinations that you have. So some of this is is explicit because you wrote it in your your book and some of it is my conjecture. So I'd like you to help me out one or the other. So you start off talking about Christopher Hitchens and how uh, he was writing these polemical books, or at least one polemical book, No One Left to Lie To, about Clinton and looking at, at the whole idea of lying, perjuring, mendacity as the right. sine qua non of, uh, of disreputability right. and, uh, and why, in fact, no one should take the Clinton seriously and, and all the rest of this. And this piqued your interest in terms of um, the public's orientation towards the importance not only of lying, but lying in the public realm. Right. Um, and then the interesting thing following up was afterwards, when Hitchens himself became an advocate mm. of the war in Iraq, all of a sudden, this whole idea of weapons of mass destruction, were they really there, weren't they there, were, were people lying, right. and all the rest of this, that didn't matter so much because right. it was really part of right. the importance of, of cleansing the world of the, the pernicious acts of Saddam Hussein and so forth and so on. So he himself tacked quite wildly. So this was a, a, a wonderful foil mm. for, for you, it seems, mm. to, to get started. But I'm guessing you have been thinking about these sorts of ideas well before then. And how much of this notion of lying in the public, public consciousness and Hitchens triggered things that were already there? Or, or how much really caused you to think afresh about, about these ideas? Well, I doubt if I would have written the book if I hadn't been asked to write the review of the Hitchens book, uh, London Review. So that was the immediate cause. But you're absolutely right. I mean, there must have been something prior. And probably was reading Hannah Arendt uh, and her essays uh, on truth in politics and lying in politics, which were, in a way, typically Arendtian. That is to say, um, against the, uh, let's say, conventional wisdom, uh, provocative, uh, not fully... Um, let's say, clear in the implications. She was always, uh, you know, subtle enough to understand the ambiguities of positions. And the issue of whether or not there was something special about the political realm, something that set it apart when she was one of the great advocates of that, uh, started me thinking whether or not one of the things that did set it apart was precisely the 
let's say, pass given under uh, many circumstances to uh, at least uh, fudging or twisting or shading the truth or perhaps outright lying. Uh, even while at the very same time the accusation of lying, the uh, accusation hurled at one's enemies, uh, was itself such a staple of politics. So that paradox that people in a way uh, often accepted the fact that politics was a realm in which certain moral conventions about lying were, uh, if not suspended, at least qualified, while at the same time using the accusation of lying as a tool against the enemies. So that in a way probably was lurking in the background when I was asked to review the books uh, by Hitchens and George Stephanopoulos by the London Review. Right, and, and it seems to me that as an intellectual historian, this is a perfect sort of subject to, to, mm -hmm. to grab your hands around because you can look at not only lying, but of course it's, it's the conjunction of lying and politics. Right. And so you can look at that combination all the way back uh, to platonic times right. up until the present, which is of course what you do. But it's, so am I wrong in saying that this is a paradigmatic meaty topic that as an intellectual historian you go, yes, right. this, is, this is a good one. I can, I can really get my teeth into this. Well, intellectual history gives you certain tools uh, to relativize absolute contemporary positions. I mean, it gives you a sense of the sedimented and often uh, contradictory uh, uh, legacy of other people's thoughts on these issues. So that instead of thinking that you can ever get it right in a kind of transcendental way in which uh, you know, history is suspended, it makes you sensitive to the fact that other people over many, many uh, centuries and in many different contexts have also thought about the same issues. So uh, lying itself and then the issue of what constitutes politics, these are not self-evident uh, questions. One has to uh, you know, do the, the kind of spade work to figure out what other people have said. So I've always been interested in what I call in the title of another book, cultural semantics, the kind of ways in which words mean things over a long period of time in different ways, etymologies and different, uh, let's say, discursive contexts shade them in ways that we sometimes forget, uh, and yet nonetheless um, may be beneath the surface palpable and still uh, having a kind of efficacy in our use, use of those words. So obviously lying, there's an enormous tradition of people who have uh, pondered the implications of lying, the justifications or lack thereof for lying. And then uh, when I really got into the subject, the political or what we mean by politics uh, and how we understand its boundaries, whether or not we talk about it having an essence, whether or not we make the distinction between the political as an almost ontological phenomenon versus uh, everyday uh, rather banal mundane politics, all of that became, uh, as you say, available for a kind of intellectual historical uh, exploration. From my perspective, it looks like <clears throat> it, was, it was a tool, it was a scalpel in a way, <clears throat> looking at using lying to look right. at what is this political right. realm and how, how does it differ from other realms and you talk about leakage from one realm to right. the other and political right. philosophers talking about sealing off a political right. realm. Is it naturally human? And, and, and so the whole idea of lying looked to me like a probe that you could right. actually use to actually explore that. Is that fair? Well, I think that one could get into the political and what people have said about it in many different ways, many different directions. You know, you can ask uh, about uh, institutions, you know, whether or not uh, there are particularly political institutions as opposed to economic, social, uh, religious institutions, and ask about when they became basically 
relatively autonomous. I mean, they're never fully autonomous. Uh, one can ask about uh, activities. I mean, what constitutes being political? I mean, is the personal political as we thought in the 1970s? And if so, is there no distinction between, you know, deciding if you're a man to wash the dishes uh, and, uh, you know, going on a, a strike or starting a revolution because everything is political? You could also ask about the political uh, in terms of its, um, let's call it uh, oppositions in the semantic field. So uh, the public versus the private. Uh, or the political uh, versus the economic, or the political versus the moral. So the politics, I mean, this is true of all, I think, terms, need to be situated in a dynamic force field of uh, competitive uh, and sometimes synonymous terms. And uh, the crucial thing to note is that this is historically variable, so that right. you know, the political in our society at this moment is not the same thing as the political in the European Middle Ages or, say, in uh, you know, a society uh, prior to uh, Columbus's discovery of America or the European, uh, you know, quote, discovery of America and so forth. So these terms have their histories and they have their shifting um, terrains. And uh, as you say, you know, one way to deal with that is to look at a particular theme. And so lying proved to be, I, I think, fairly uh, fruitful in that respect. And as you're looking at <coughs> politics, Another concept which comes up in your book and in other books like this is not only how different societal trends uh, grow and, and recede and so forth and so on, but how often um, concepts are actually misused or at least perverted or ascribed meanings that they don't have. Machiavelli is a, is a, right. is a right. case in point that this is someone who, depending on the time that one lives in and depending on where one is on, on planet Earth, he's either incredibly insightful, deeply right. realistic, the devil himself, <laughs> necessarily right. anathematized. And, and, and you, you look at this, uh, again, with the eyes of an intellectual historian to not only show the, the, how ideas are received or non-received in, in a particular society, but the backdrop to that society right. itself and what those cultural values are, right. which is, anyway, from, from my perspective, uh, pretty cool. And Machiavelli is a fascinating case, and I'm certainly no serious uh, student of Machiavelli and the uh, incredible uh, literature that's been devoted to him, but what he obviously, uh, I mean, he, he was clearly a thorn in the side of a lot of uh, traditional um, uh, you know, positions in politics, religion, uh, and uh, morality. But what he represented in a perhaps creative way was a recognition that the political, the state, uh, could be autonomous in a way that made it no longer subordinate to religious and moral imperatives. So what we see in the modern world, uh, especially after uh, the uh, Treaty of Westphalia in 1648 is a growing sense that religion and uh, trans what we call transcendent morality um, has to be uh, kept at bay, maybe even suspended when it comes to raison d'etat, when it comes to uh, the, uh, in a way, self-justification of state building and uh, state survival. And Machiavelli was one of the first people to put his finger on that. So he can be hailed as a figure of, by those who like this idea, Hale is a figure who understood the autonomy of the political uh, and its relative um, freedom from uh, external uh, limits, uh, such as those produced by religion or traditional morality, right. uh, which meant, of course, that he was construed as amoral and uh, so forth by people who wanted to bring those uh, moral constraints back. But from the perspective of mendacity, the interesting <coughs> meta <coughs> comment to make is he was 
widely perceived as telling the truth, the right, naked right, truth. Right. The, <laughs> he right. wasn't dressing things up. He wasn't prettying right. them. He wasn't, he wasn't ascribing higher moral tendencies that we all know deep down right. might not actually right. be, be the case. He was telling the right. truth. And within this broader context of what it is to lie, what it is to tell mm. the truth, who's telling the truth, who's lying, it brings out interesting points. Well, there are many paradoxes. I mean, there is the one that you just pointed to, telling the truth about lying, or the truth about artifice, or the truth about the fact that culture trumps nature, or the truth about the fact that language is always deceptive rather than fully representational or fully accurate. So there's that, you know, we might call it truth-telling about the fact that there is no truth. And Nietzsche and other people have also, in a way, played with that paradox. But then there's also the higher-level meta-reflection on the fact that being a truth-teller in this sense is also a ploy, is also itself an artifice. So, you know, it's the old idea that uh, many deconstructionists in particular were keen on uh, telling us about, the old idea of uh, parabasis in which the Greek um, uh, tra protagonist in the tragedy would suddenly take his mask off, turn towards the audience, and speak, as it were, from the heart. You know, in other words, moving beyond this theatrical uh, character and becoming somehow a person talking to you. But, they point out, this was itself uh, a trope. This was itself sure. uh, a ruse. It's what politicians do all the time. Exactly. They say, oh, look, exactly. well, let me exactly. tell you all straight, exactly. this exactly. guy's lying. Exactly. But I, I'm going to be authentic. Right. So, the, the, we might call the pose of authenticity of being the truth teller becomes itself part of the game rather than somehow a breaking of the rules of the game. Uh, and Machiavelli, in a way, is part of that uh, dialectic, we might say, as well. Yeah. It's interesting when you mentioned earlier your love of etymology and so forth. Some of right. the things I didn't know, mm -hmm. some of the many things I didn't know, um, at some point you talk about uh, where the word hypocrisy comes from. And you mentioned, so correct me if I'm wrong, but um, my understanding is that it, it's abstracted from uh, the Greek idea of, of response, and, it, and, right. and it's, it comes from the theater, or at right. least it's, right. it, it's been ascribed right. to be related to the theater, which is very, very interesting because it brings up this idea that what you see on stage, of course, is not real. It right. is not to be trusted. Right. It's an act. It's artifice. Right. It's dressed up. And um, so you can tell a lot from the language. Right. For me personally, that, that sort of thing was quite, quite interesting. But that seems to be a metaphor for this whole notion of artifice and who's telling the truth and who's being, uh, who's using fancy words, right. who's on stage, who's dressing up in clothes. And moving on to the United States, there's this whole mythos about that, uh, looking at, at truth-telling as a response against mm -hmm. the previous regime, as it was, right? right? The, pre the people who were the aristocrats who spoke right. in fancy clothes. Sorry, <laughs> they might have spoken in fancy clothes, but they wore fancy right. clothes. Right. They, they spoke in fancy words. Right. They had command of rhetoric and no, we're puritanical, right. we're plain speaking. Right. And, and, and this aspect has imbued itself in the public consciousness of the United States to such an extent that you, you still see aspects of it today. And anyway, so sure. I, I don't know if, if uh, I should ask a question because I understand that's what you're supposed to do in this particular dynamic. But um, to me, that was that uh, was particularly fascinating. Yeah, I, I think it's amazingly um, complex because you're absolutely right. There are parallels between you know hypocrisy on the stage, where it's clear that people are play acting and uh, play acting in the public realm. The theatrical metaphor is used. Uh, we play at politics and we attack a person by saying he's only, you know, playing, uh, this is uh, playing politics in a kind of negative. So there is a sense of the parallel. And yet there's also a crucial difference, which is often pointed out when it comes to fiction in general, theatr theatrical 
fiction perhaps in particular, and real life, which is that in real life a lie is meant to deceive and is based upon the trust that you have the person who's not deceiving. So performatively, it's designed not simply to describe something incorrectly, but rather to make you, when I tell you the lie, believe that I'm telling the truth. Right. Whereas on the stage, we know we're in an aesthetic frame. We know that the person on the stage is not really you know, killing somebody. Right, there's the whole suspension of disbelief. Exactly, thing. exactly. Right. So there is that interesting um, non-parallel quality as well. So it's theatrical, yes, but you know, real lives are at stake in politics. Real lives are not at stake uh, in theatrical performances. So there's a funny way in which there's an overlap, but not a full identity between the two. Right. And lying is so serious and, you know, I mean, art is serious in its own way, but lying is so serious because uh, it has intersubjective um, uh, implications, performative implications, very different from those that are produced by uh, fictionality, understood by everybody as such. Right. And there, of course, are people who have deliberately blurred that distinction and blurred that line. You, you, right. you point out the decay of lying and Oscar Wilde exactly. and so forth. Exactly. And he's playing with that whole, exactly. whole notion. Right. Right. Um, I want to get to this idea of the American context again and right. potentially American exceptionalism. As you know, I, I had a discussion with your colleague David Hollinger not too long ago, and we were talking about ecumenical Protestantism and, uh -huh. and, and the, the idea of, um, uh, of, a, of the cultural influences in the United States that have derived from this original puritanical idea. Mm -hmm. um, and you see it again in uh, some of the things that you're talking about. So the, the image that comes to mind is this, uh, this one that everyone's heard of, of George Washington, right. who cannot tell a lie. Right. And here is this new country and this new society, and it's based upon, as one of its founding myths, that the leader of their people right. uh, is incapable of lying. Now, there are all sorts of interesting aspects to this. It seems to me one of them, as you point out very cleverly, is that myth, of course, turns out to be a lie. <laughs> Right, <laughs> which, is, right, which, right. Is, which is rather odd. But is it fair to say that that represents historically a point of demarcation for the United States where they say we're just, we're cutting, we're starting anew and we're cutting ourselves off from all of this mm -hmm. old world uh, riddled with hypocrisy traditions and we're, we're redefining the universal uh, rights of man mm -hmm. and as well we're actually going to do things properly in terms of governance and politics and no more lying, full transparency. Is, that's a conscious act um, that America has mm. done. Is that, a, is that a fair statement well, that yeah, that's I'm not, necessary? I'm not an American historian. I, I'm always loath to make a very, very broad generalizations. Well, I'm not either, history. and I've already made a few, so well, <laughs> we're I mean, qualified. You know, I, I think we all do, but I'm, in other words, I want to sort of step back a little from being overly certain about this. Sure. And I think there certainly were tendencies in American political cultural life to demonize what they saw as the artifice of, uh, say, European, maybe British politics, British culture, and a desire to start fresh in a new world uh, in which one had experiences that were not uh, pre-filtered through customs and, uh, you know, from time immemorial traditions that would somehow be constraining. So the United States had this hope, maybe innocence we might call it, uh, of clearing away a lot of the debris and beginning uh, with a clean slate. And this involved uh, plain speaking and involved trying to overcome uh, the deceptions of uh, previous um, uh, ways of, uh, you know, both political and other types of life. Now, one might argue, 
that before the Civil War, the American South still maintained a strong sense of the importance of a kind of um, courtly deception. And you know, certainly the slavery question, if we think seriously about that, was one which the United States did not handle with transparency and with uh, you know, a kind of uh, you know, real um, concern for truth-telling. And so you know, the three-fifths clause in the Constitution is kind of a clearly uh, mendacious way to consider human beings. And you know, when uh, Jefferson and others said all men are created equal, uh, there was a kind of asterisk. So uh, we weren't so truth-telling in all respects. But there are certainly moments in American history. Um, my former student, the late Ken Camille, wrote a wonderful book on plain speaking late 19th century uh, in America, which dealt with a desire to overcome what was seen as pomposity and uh, circumlocutions and all the kind of highfalutin uh, language of uh, traditional politics and to speak from the heart, to be as, uh, you know, let's say, accessible and inclusive uh, as possible. Now this happens in, in Europe at the same time as slightly later, and the great example is of course the war poetry uh, in World War I, which begins with a kind of high rhetoric, you know, the diction of, uh, you know, almost the classical, neoclassical tradition. And then because the war is so uh, disillusioning, disabusing people of these, uh, you know, basically uh, false expectations, uh, poetry itself becomes much more direct, much more prose-like, much more, let's get rid of this garbage and talk from the heart. The so, real things, the real points. So various cultures at various points decide somehow that uh, all this, uh, you know, artifice, all the ornamentation has to be gotten rid of. You find it in Europe, for example, in architecture, you know, where someone like Adolf Luce says, ornament is crime. So there are kind of, let's say, moments in virtually every culture. Yeah, but these, were, these were periods, as opposed to the American well, mythos. We, which we, generally, we generally, I think, um, think of ourselves as being more straightforward in our self-presentations. I mean, you know, the reality is that all those books that I listed at one point uh, in uh, Verse of Mendacity, which talk about lying, show that we still are very uneasy about the fact that people, uh, you know, from the age of Barnum on up, uh, are huckstering us, are you know, pulling our leg or, or deceiving us, advertising or, you know, politics as advertising. So there's that undercurrent as well that or we talk about plain speaking, we talk about authenticity, but we also know that we live in a realm of incredible uh, artifice, whether it has to do with commercial uh, matters or political matters. So I would say there's a kind of dual consciousness about that. Uh, and so it's not a single story of, you know, we're virtuous, they're, you know, somehow uh, complicitous with... Uh, you know, basic uh, verbiage that uh, goes beyond the truth-telling. We also are aware of those ambivalences. My only point was um, that at some level, I suspect that this still uh, is associated with the way that many Americans define themselves. Right. Right. Whereas if you look at um, different periods, you mentioned architecture, you mentioned uh, right. post-World War I poetry. Uh, another example which comes to mind is George Orwell, who mm. had this, uh, this enormous effect, not just, of mm. course, in the United Kingdom, but throughout the world, in terms of recognizing the abuses uh, mm. of language, uh, criticizing right. uh, people for all sorts of rhetorical flourishes that were superfluous and, in fact, misleading. Um, and you also point out that there's an irony there as well, mm -hmm. because Orwell, who was constantly portraying himself as the representative of the common man and plain speech right. and all the rest of this, was himself an intellectual and to right. some extent sure. was actually misleading people right. <laughs> in that regard. So these ironies certainly abound uh, all, right. all over the place. Um, 
But uh, I, I did want to get to some of the conclusions were, as it were, of your investigation. Okay. So here you are, you're looking at, at lying as an interesting topic in the history of ideas so that you can put it in a historical right. context, but also perhaps more significantly, you're looking at it, as I said before, as maybe a scalpel, as a tool to examine mm -hmm. what is this political thing mm -hmm. and how can we tolerate mm -hmm. lying in one area and not in another right. area? How does right. it seal things off in terms of, of, of these areas of human mm. investigation. So what were some of the conclusions that okay. you had from that? Well, of course, there are many. One that I think is salient is the issue of to whom is the truth owed. You know, in other words, there is a general presupposition, I suppose, that from the point of view of the liar, it can be um, you know, self-defeating uh, and uh, corrosive to one's soul to lie. You know, and people like Augustine and perhaps Kant who held a strong anti-lying position, would have argued that uh, no matter the circumstances, you as a liar are sullied by your refusal uh, to be truthful. So there it's basically, uh, you know, you're the, uh, the sort of issue. In politics, uh, it's not so much about saving my soul. Right. It's not so much being pure. Uh, if I wanted to do that, I would go and become a monk. You know, so politics involves uh, interactions with people who are uh, basically either adversarial, they have different interests, or you know, you make strategic alliances, or it involves somehow getting something done or preventing something from getting done. So it's inevitably consequentialist. So the issue is to whom is the truth owed, and for what reason. So you know, I looked at a wide spectrum of what we consider to be part of politics, and obviously, in a situation of full antagonism, a war or even a cold war, we don't know the enemy of the truth. I mean, there's no question that we want to win. Uh, our existence may be at stake. So truth is uh, you know, always a casualty of war, for good or for ill. Right. And even perhaps when we're fighting a war, we propagandize our own people to try to, you know, to lift their morale. Now, in somewhat less adversarial situations, in a, say, a diplomatic situation, when we're jockeying position but without violence, or maybe the threat of violence is used but not violent, there is a way in which we also know that you know, there's a certain bending of the truth, that you promise something, you sugarcoat something. So, you know, the line that I think Sir Henry Wooten uh, is uh, always credited with, that a you know, diplomat is an honest man who's sent abroad to lie for his country, captures, you know, that quality of our being always in a kind of game, a political uh, international game of trying to gain advantage through whatever means, sometimes including lying. And, and that's equivalent, it seems to me, to what you were saying before about being on stage, the suspension of disbelief, the, the rules of the game. We, we, exactly. Diplom diplomacy has certain rules. I mean, that was why the Snowden um, revelation of uh, these cables and other pieces of information was so damaging, because we discovered you know, that say the uh, American uh, ambassador to Germany was cabling home that he thought the German Minister of Defense was a fool. You know, now he wouldn't say that to the Minister of Defense, he wouldn't say it in public in newspapers, but that was his job, to tell the truth about what he understood to people back home, but not to tell the truth to his, uh, you know, German counterpart or to uh, the public. And so there was something, uh, you know, shocking about seeing that unvarnished or relatively unvarnished truth. So we know the diplomacy, so that's one area. Another area, uh, when we get to domestic politics, is the adversarial relationship between uh, different parties in a system which involves competitive parties, a pluralist system. 
you know, here too, I mean, the Democrats don't tell the Republicans, you know, all the things they're thinking and vice versa. And we know that. So there's a, a kind of way in which we understand that the game involves strategic spin, strategic, uh, you know, ways of, uh, if not lying and outright manipulating the truth. So recently when um, our uh, much beleaguered president uh, disclosed that he didn't have a strategy to deal with ISIS, everybody jumped on him for being frank. Uh, somebody said, I think it was Michael Kinsley said, look, a gaffe is when a politician tells the truth. You know, that he should have somehow should have coded and not been. So I think we're aware of the fact that in those circumstances that adversarial relationships are always problematic. Now, the other issue is whether or not a politician in office should lie to the people, lie to his constituents, lie to his, uh, you know, the people who trust him. Now, clearly you can't do this too much. So lying is always a... I would say, uh, you know, it can't be normative. It can't be the default position. You have to have a reputation for truth even to get away with a lie. But under certain circumstances, lying for the benefit of the people to prevent, say, a panic on the stock market or to uh, rally morale or do something that, at least in the short run, is necessary, can perhaps be justified. And politicians do this all the time. We read their memoirs years later and they explain, you know, more frankly what they were doing. And so we sort of know that. So it's an issue of trust, not in their telling the truth, but trust in acting in a way that will benefit us. And occasionally, as it, you know, as the case, say, with a parent or with a doctor, we trust them to think of our best interests rather than just always to tell the truth. Now, the other issue that's absolutely uh, crucial in politics is the directionality of truth-telling, from the powerful to the relatively powerless, or from the powerless up, from those who are threatened uh, by uh, the need to confess, the need to uh, be somehow frank if the police say, you know, uh, is there a, uh, a murderer, uh, you know, with the, with the great uh, case that is always raised, is there a murderer in the back room? Uh, well, you don't, you don't have to tell, uh, you know, the police uh, everything. You don't have to tell uh, the authorities everything. But, and moreover, you also use an example if, if a murderer comes to you and asks right. where the well, person is. Well, that's the other, exactly. I was, I was thinking, I mean, in a way, I'm, I'm muddying two different things. That, that's the famous one, the murderer comes to you, where's the victim? But murderers, I mean, I, I'm thinking also here, these are not murderers, but, uh, but potential victims of murderers. Uh, the movie Inglorious Bastards begins, you may have seen in the Tarantino movie, begins with... Uh, the Jew hunter coming to the door with his Nazi troops and asking a peasant who's hiding uh, Jews in the basement of his house whether or not there are any Jews there. And the guy initially lies, saving them, protecting them, and then finally he's coerced through threats into telling the truth, and they're all machine gun when a person escapes. So there there was a question of, uh, it would have been in a way more moral to tell lies to power to tell lies to the authorities who are going to misuse it. So the murderer's case, of course, is the, the example of that. Right. So uh, the directionality, and we all know now that the imperative to be honest can be problematic because of surveillance. So that the realm of privacy, the realm of secrets, the realm of uh, I don't have to tell you, uh, that you don't have a right to know, I don't owe you the truth, means that the government asks me who I voted for if we have a secret ballot, if they say, well, you know, uh, did you vote for my party? If you did, I'll give you, you know, something uh, in reward. If you didn't, then you're out. We, we can't be forced to do that. We can't be compelled to tell the truth, the old inquisitional model of being compelled. Now, there are various ways now in which, of course, that's under threat, as we are, uh, you know, forced by the technology to give up truths that we don't want to disclose. So, in some ways, the ability to lie in politics, the ability not to tell authorities what they want to know, 
saves us sometimes from being, uh, you know, overly available for certain coercive measures. So once again, it's very, very, I would say, uh, contextual and consequentialist and nuanced. And, you know, I mean, on the other hand, there are times when the government does want to know something, will subpoena you, will, you know, they'll do something in a juridical context. Uh, you know, you can appear before a congressional committee where you swear to tell the truth and the whole truth, nothing but the truth. Uh, and then you are obliged to tell the truth. Uh, but politicians, and this is one of the points I make in the book, when they, uh, you know, uh, have an oath, they do not, uh, that's not the oath they're asked to uh, attest to. They're not asked to say, I will tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Right. They may uphold the Constitution, they may do other things, not that. And so, there's some understanding of a social covenant that that is, in fact, what they're taking on, which is to say that there's some awareness writ large among the, among the populace that they are not actually swearing to tell the truth, right. the whole truth, exactly. and nothing but the truth. Exactly. And that's part of this directionality business exactly. that, that you're talking about. I mean, we want them uh, to tell us the truth, you know, but we don't always want them to tell the public or our enemy the truth. Um, you know, so it's very variable. So there's no rule. I mean, I, I think that what comes out of a book like this is an awareness of how situational, contextual, specific these kinds of uh, situations really are, that there is no absolute rule that you must follow. That, that's where Kant, I think, went wrong uh, in trying to oblige us through a transcendent rule that was somehow applicable no matter what. Yeah. We also had space and time wrong, but anyway. That's, yeah. <laughs> that's a whole other <laughs> that's, conversation. That's a whole other conversation. <clears throat> um, so I wanted to ask you a little bit more along those lines. So you're looking at politics, the sphere of politics, the art of politics, if you will, uh, politics as a, as, a, as a social phenomenon, um, through, this, through this filter, through this, this window of lying, um, you just mentioned uh, one conclusion that you had, which is to say that things are a little bit more nebulous, a little right. bit uh, less law-like than we might ordinarily think. Um, are there others? Are there other things that we can learn from, from looking at, at politics through lying? Well, lying has, as Hannah Arendt pointed out, a kind of forward-looking direction. You know, you lie, you can lie about facts in the past, but they're very hard to, uh, you know, uh, undo. So that, um, you know, uh, somebody once said, uh, you can lie about many things, but you can't make Belgium, uh, you know, the country that invaded Germany in 1914. It just didn't happen. So lying about the past is hard. Politics often involves the future. I promise that if I'm elected, I'll do this. Uh, watch out, if this guy gets in, he will do that. So you make these statements that are conditional, you make these statements, you know, in a way, maybe with your fingers crossed. I mean, you see this now with Obama and immigration, where he's backtracking like crazy. Now, did he lie? Well, you know, he didn't lie. Maybe that's what he intended to do. But, you know, he ended up basically not doing what he said he was going to do in immigration, many other things. Guantanamo, as far as I can tell, is still a prison. So there are lots of ways in which politics involves making statements about what will happen in the future which are statements more of hope and intention than a fact. And uh, therefore, they have built into them a kind of, not fully lying, but at least openness to the possibility of it going in a totally different direction. And politicians can't be explicit about that. They have to say, look, if I get in, this is going to happen. You right. know, elect me and I will you know, put a chicken in every pot. And yet they know that it's highly unlikely because of the circumstances that they'll be able to get their way. They know, but the populace also knows. Well, the populace, if it's clever enough and has <laughs> enough experience, knows that. But it often, you know, foolishly believes pie in the sky. So an awareness of the fact that politics is a game of ifs and conditional possibilities rather than 
you know, law-like regularities and uh, natural causality is a wise lesson to learn. So I think recognizing politics is part of that, you know, game is, is you know, a, a part of wisdom. The other thing, of course, is that it involves, if not utopian, at least, uh, let's say, imaginative hopes for something that might happen. So politics is the realm of desire, the realm of, you know, we, we have a problem, let's fix it. We have a injustice, let's uh, right it. We have something that needs to be done. And so lying is a way also to argue against the dead weight of facts of this is the way it is, this is the way it must be, this is the way it always has been. So often, and this is where you come back to uh, artifice, theatricality, and uh, fictionality, politics has within it the capacity to imagine what is not the case. Now, you do it in such a way that you, know, you claim it really will be the case, so there's a kind of obvious deception in it, but uh, there's some way in which it involves uh, you know, the belief that uh, we can make it uh, otherwise. And you know, as I point out in uh, the earlier chapter of the book dealing with politics and uh, language and also politics and nature and politics and socialization, children, when they learn to lie, when they learn that they don't have to tell what is in their heart or what just happened, when they tell mommy no, they don't have a cookie when they're really hiding one behind their back, gain a certain autonomy, autonomy from the fact that they must always tell the truth. And that one of the definitions of an autistic disorder, so I gather, I'm not a serious student of this, is the inability to do that, that, that autistic kids have problems knowing when somebody else is lying, they have problems in you know, distinguishing between their own internal reality and what they can say, and it, it's one of the problems that apparently defines, so I gather, autism. So it is a very human, we might say, capacity to think otherwise. And so lying has this almost utopian side to it, and uh, I think Arendt in particular points this out. But I think it's generally lost in the public consciousness, <clears throat> and certainly in a society mm -hmm. where people are castigating individuals right. for lying, as we mentioned with Christopher Hitchens right at the very right. beginning. This is the sine qua non of immoral political behavior. The, this person should be thrown out or right. recalled or what have you for, for lying. I think this notion that lying isn't necessarily always a bad thing uh, is, I think, an important one to, to convey. Did that resonate with people when, in terms of the response to this book? Did, did well, the response, on that? the response was, of course, mixed, as I expected it to be. I mean, there are people who, you know, still hold to a very strong, call it moralistic attitude, where lying is problematic in general politics, where there's trust and where there's, you know, belief that people are being honest. Uh, sure, but you're not advocating breaking public trust. No, I mean, that's no. Not well, it's, it's a kind of funny ideal. I mean, trust, precisely as I said earlier, in what, in doing what's best for everybody who are in telling the truth no matter what. So we trust in various things. I mean, in God we trust, even if we don't believe in God. So th th there's a kind of funny way in which, uh, you know, there's, there's a kind of I know but I don't know quality in that. Uh, but I think the, the crucial thing in a way is to think of uh, the uh, wariness that we have about lying, it's something we can't give up. You know, that we, we ought not to be completely, uh, let's say, cynical about it. I mean, this is a book which argues against the notion that politics is the realm just of self-interest, just of corruption, just of cynicism, but that something good gets done even when people suspend overly moral, uh, regulative uh, ideals. So some people got that, and there are a number of other books that I cite by people who take seriously uh, the positive functions under certain circumstances of lying. When I mentioned the idea of um, you know, the utopian hopes, there's a wonderful book in French 
uh, on the idea of le mensonge, in which the notion of songe, of dream, mm. in mensonge is taken seriously. You're dreaming of something else. So there's that aspect to it. And I, I think we had, uh, you know, with the Snowden revelation, a very interesting example of the, let's say, potential dysfunction of an overly truth-telling situation in which everything was disclosed, people's lives, sometimes uh, spies, whatever, were put in jeopardy, people were embarrassed. Uh, was it always in the service of a better politics? Well, I'm not so sure. Uh, I mean, there are people like Daniel Ellsberg who will say, yes, it was, and that everything should be disclosed, and that corruption and you know, malfeasance was disclosed and so forth. Well, of course, it was only one-sided. We saw what our government did. We didn't see what uh, other governments were also uh, you know, somehow doing. And so in a way, if everybody gets uh, outed, that's one thing, but if only some people get outed, maybe right. not. So. And, and I think <clears throat> most people understand the whole idea of a white lie. I mean, you, you right. and so this is sort right. of a political, right. maybe a political version of a white lie, right. or you mentioned uh, in, in French, of course, is this notion of literally a pious lie, right? right? Exactly. Where, where, exactly. Where, where there, is, there is an occasion where people can and maybe even should lie. Um, there are the extreme versions of this when the, you know, the inglorious bastards right. idea, right. but even on a day-to-day -day level, we all know right. that right. that sometimes if somebody looks horrible right. and they say, "How do I look?" You don't right. say, "You look exactly. horrible." To exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so no, this, this is the socialization social socialization of politeness. Right. I mean, a society in which politesse, politeness is overly valued, is a society in which everything is surface. And you know, the classic example, the court of Louis the Fourteenth. Uh, and then the Puritans respond to that. I mean, that's the typical, you know, Pascal and others, uh, the Jansenists are against the Jesuits. So there are lots of ways in which we understand politeness can be taken too far. But without politeness, without a sense of civility, without a sense of sparing the feelings of the other person, without a sense of smoothing over potential, uh, you know, adversarial relationships, society wouldn't function. Zimmel, other people, sociologists like Georg Zimmel noted that, uh, you know, as the basis of society, that, you know, how are you? I'm fine. Well, maybe you're not fine, but I don't really give a damn. I'm asking how you are uh, out of politeness. So we know that. Now, the cases of the white lie, they're usually pretty, let's say, innocuous. But, you know, this is where the religious debates are interesting. If somebody says, are you a Catholic in a Protestant country in the uh, 16th century? Well, you know, if you say, yes, I am, you could be killed. Yeah. So, you know, the church then says, all right, all right, okay, we don't want you killed. You have a pass to make a mental reservation. And so there are moments in which even religious, uh, you know, systems of telling the truth, uh, there's an Islamic notion of taqiyah, which is the same thing. So there are various ways in which even those seemingly rigorous moral and religious systems understand circumstantially sure. that there are uh, moments when one has to... Uh, be relatively, uh, you know, let's say, uh, disingenuous. Well, there are higher codes, right? I mean, there's a higher prioritization. If your survival <coughs> is at a higher level, then you have to... Right. Well, the other way to that. think about it is competing moral commands. Right. You know, so I may do it to help somebody else, not my survival, but to help somebody else's survival. So there are lots of... I mean, I think, is it Rousseau? For one of the people who deals with the complexity of this says, look, lying is for your self-interest. And of course, in the case of someone who is accused of being Catholic and Protestant, it is self-interest, and you know you get a pass on that. But if it's just for your self-interest, you lie just to gain advantage in a commercial transaction, whatever. That's not so good. If you lie for the benefit of somebody else, you know, if you even jeopardize your soul for the benefit of somebody else, that has a nobler, let's say, potential. So the issue, and this is where Kant, I think, was problematic. The issue is not so much as a hierarchy of moral commands, and we always know which ones to follow, but rather the fact that we have often 
in a complex world, many different moral commands, many different uh, pragmatic uh, imperatives, many different reasons why we act in the way we act, not out of impulse or selfishness, but with real reasons. So we may have a moral, let's say, uh, debate within ourselves before we choose to lie or be hypocritical, and we may decide, no, I, I must tell the truth no matter what. You know, let the chips fall where they may. Or we may decide, no, we have other concerns and we take those seriously as countervailing reasons not to lie. So again, it's this sense of <clears throat> the rigidity or rebelling against the rigidity of, of, of the system, of the social system, and that you can't just have these inflexible moral laws that, that uh, pertain to whatever the situation right. may be at all times, at all instances. You have to use right. judgment. You, you, you right. have to recognize the countervailing factors that are right. in play and, and, and so forth. And interestingly, again, this has a, a concrete manifestation in the political realm, and again, leads you to the conclusion that, well, it may not always be such a bad thing when people right. are lying. And, and, and that's something which I think if you were to tell the average guy on the street, they'd back up and right. say, well, hang on a minute, that's, that can't be the case. But of course, if they think about it, I think they would come to that conclusion. Well, the deeper reason why I think that's the case is because truth, this is an Arendtian argument, Hannah Arendt made this very clear, truth is in a way the enemy of the political. That is to say, truth is singular, monological. Uh, there is a truth, everything else is a falsehood or an error. And therefore, there are certain discursive contexts in which we aim for the truth. So science tries to come up with the truth. Sometimes in a juridical situation, we, we try to come up with the truth of whether or not the person committed the crime. So we understand that there the telos of the discourse is truth-telling. In politics, where there are opinions, where there are countervailing interests, where we are projecting ourselves into a future which is not yet capable of being amenable to the truth. We don't know the truth about the future. Politics is a game in which the truth is perhaps uh, a dangerous goal because it's so singular. So as I point out in the book, the big truth is in a way the mirror image of the big lie in which we try to create a heterocosm, a new universe, which is perfectly consistent, in which everything fits, in which there is also a kind of pseudo-truth, which is in fact a lie. It's like the Truman Show, you know, where you live in this bubble. So what we need instead, it seems to me, is an awareness of the fact we have lots of little, if not full lies, half-truths, spins, opinions, uh, a plurality of different uh, positions, which never congeal into a single monologic truth, which is then represented by a single institution or a single party or a single figure or you know, anything that then leads to a kind of totalitarian notion that the truth is embodied in a political institution or person. So that instead we understand politics as precisely the realm of contingency, of openness, plurality, of um, something which allows humility in a way, that we're fallible, we, we may not get it right, you know, and uh, politics is often filled with unintended consequences, and therefore we can't really have ever a monopoly on the truth. And if we have any definition of totalitarianism, it is precisely the attempt to create that single truth with a, uh, you know, single uh, and totally monopolistic notion of what politics should be. So to that extent, and this is why I talk about the aesthetic moment in politics, mm -hmm. and this remarkably, uh, I think, rich use of uh, Ernst Kantorowicz's notion of the king's two bodies, in which even in democracy, we get the distinction between the, let's call it, ideal body of the people, uh, 
popular sovereignty, the ideal body, which is then like the corpus mysticum, uh, the mystical body of Christ, or like the king's royal body that exists even when the king dies, that on the one hand, and the real people, that is to say, you and me who are voting, this party that claims to represent the people, the population, which is not the same thing as the notional idea of the people, uh, and the people itself is a contested term, and it should always remain contested at a distance from, never conflated with, that ideal notion of the people. And lying uh, is in a way built into that because we often speak in the name of the people, right. but in fact the people is always this kind of will-o'-the-wisp that is something we never quite reach, even though in some systems there's a collapse which is dangerous between the people and well, that's, institutions. That's what I wanted to ask you about. How much in your judgment are these ideas, are these arguments tied necessarily to the democratic project? I mean, is, is there... Right. Is there a sense that there's a, there's, they're necessarily relevant to the democratic project and, and maybe irrelevant to, to any other form? And I'm not just talking totalitarianism, I'm talking oligarchy, other right. forms of quasi-representational government, uh, monarchy, what, what have you. Right. How, much is, uh, how, how much of what we're talking about is, is really overwhelmingly relevant to, to democracy and are there some aspects of this which are also relevant to other forms of government? Well, I would say, first of all, that democracy is itself an enormously complicated notion, sure. which is still very much in play. We're not sure what it means. It's not something that's ever been really achieved. It's a kind of desideratum. Sure. Which you've is got, good. You've, you've got the Athenian democracy on them, the classical democracy, which is very, very right. different from the democracy. Today and of course, you know, States. the Athenians left women and slaves out. Exactly. So, you know, they, they too were not the perfect democracy. So we know that democracy is an ideal and that, you know, democratization is a process and that it's always in danger of being undermined. So it's not as if we live in a static thing called democracy. The other thing to say about democracy is that it is always porous in the sense that there are other institutions, such as, for example, a free press, which uh, you know, can do muckraking journalism, can try to uncover the truth, can try to test lies, and, uh, you know, we need that. So a democracy is not simply the political arena, which is uh, set off, but is also in play with these other arenas. Uh, even science, which we say, which I said earlier was a kind of monologic and truth-telling, even science intersects with democracy, so that we get information from scientists, climate change, we take science seriously, we should at least, and even though people play politics with that, we take you know the lessons of experts. So politics is not just you and me deciding whether there's climate change by a vote, we take seriously what experts say. So politics and democracy in general is porous, open, it's not fully contained. But within that relatively and still porous container, uh, the democratic realm of decision-making, there are, I think, always, let's say, adversarial as well as collaborative relationships. The adversarial relationships, as I said earlier, often involve a kind of, um, you know, let's say, uh, strategic use of lying. But even in collaborative relationships in democracy, even in building coalitions, there is a space for a kind of forgetting of differences in which we create a kind of, let's say, for this election, an alliance between this wing of my party and the other wing of the party, in which I forget that there are real differences. I mean, the great example that you have in you know, international relations, which is given in the book, and many people have made this before, concerns the allies in World War II. You know, so Hitler uh, is the enemy, uh, you know, the Japanese the enemy, uh, Italy, but the alliance between Stalin, Churchill, and Roosevelt is an alliance of people who are 
you know, basically fudging the fact that they disagree over many fundamental things, communism versus capitalism, British Empire versus the, uh, you know, attempt basically to decolonize. So uh, th this was based on a kind of, uh, well, let, let's say, if not lying, at least suspension of the truth. Mm. Now, the Cold War breaks out, you know, immediately after the uh, Second World War is, uh, is won, so it's always there, latent, you know. And, but coalitions, uh, this is what happens in coalitions. So democracy works through coalitions in which one suspends that, uh, you know, a sense of uh, truth-telling. I mean, in a primary, you know, you get people in a primary, in at least the way our system works, who are at each other's throats. And they say the other guy, if he wins, is a total scoundrel, a fool. After the person wins, suddenly the party rallies around them. And before you know it, this guy is attacking somebody, becomes the vice presidential candidate. Yeah. And we all know that that's the way it works. So democracy needs, we might say, the lubrication of a certain suspension of absolute truth-telling. Uh, I mean, people go into politics and say, I'm you know, trying to get elected. They know they have no chance. You know, no chance whatsoever. And yet they go in because they want to have their ideas heard, they want to shake the system up, they want to start a third party, and yet they know, and we know, and everybody knows, they have no chance. And they will never say that publicly in the beginning. And they can't say that. They can't say it. So it's part of the, part of the you know, uh, I don't know what, the decorum of the political to fabulate. Uh, you know, and occasionally, of course, you know, as we saw with Eric Cantor, something happens that, uh, you know, no one expects. So, you know, politics, because once again it is future-oriented, is a place in which you know, the, uh, let's call it fib, can become the truth. Um, um, so I, I want to uh, pick up on this notion of, um, um, of the American political aspect of lying. Because it seems to me that if I'm some guy on the street somewhere and I say, okay, I understand these, these points generally, I understand uh, that sometimes that there are social pacts that we enter into, that, we, that there's not this absolute strict Kantian rule of morality right. which applies all over the place. I, I, I get that. And I understand even that part of leadership might necessarily entail not always telling the truth. Uh, I, I get that. But, says this person on the street and outside of your street, maybe here in Berkeley, there's something seems to me that's different that's going on today in the American system because it's not just that politicians are promising one thing and not delivering or they're, they're mm -hmm. telling a lie here or there there's this deliberate misrepresentation of what the other person mm -hmm. actually said so that you can't even get to the point of mm -hmm. any critical discourse. There is, there is this right. massive misportrayal of what, uh, what some people said or what they did or right. what historical events were to prohibit any sort of meaningful dialogue and exchange mm -hmm. towards moving in any mm -hmm. particular direction whatsoever. So the argument might be that um, this is all very well in principle and abstract, but we have now reached a point where we are lying in it to a degree. Mm -hmm. We are misrepresenting mm -hmm. things willfully to a degree which far surpasses what has happened in the mm -hmm. past and might prohibit us from actually having a fully functional mm -hmm. democracy. Does that hold Well, you know, way? this is, uh, you, you often hear this, that, you know, things are getting worse. Right. And certainly in the... Uh, period of the Bush presidency, there was a great deal of, of that kind of rhetoric that, you know, especially the weapons of mass destruction, many other examples, so that there was a flood, there was a flood of books, both on the right and on the left, about lying. Now, the kind of research that I did, um, in a way, helps to diffuse that 
cumulative narrative because it shows that in many other moments in history, there's also a panic about lying, that politicians are nothing but scoundrels, that, you know, in, in the words of uh, I.F. Stone, all governments lie, and uh, an awareness that people are being lied to and they're lying about what other people say, and that th this becomes a kind of uh, uh, such a constant refrain that the idea that it's getting worse, that too is a constant refrain. It's getting There was a golden age. There was a period when giants walked the earth and everybody was, uh, you know, uh, Gandhi. Now, in fact, that was not true. Uh, that is to say, throughout American other historical eras, uh, complaint about lying. My opponents are lying about what I mean. They're, they're distorting what I say. They're, you know, the unbelievable amount of, uh, you know, propaganda, if you want to use that term, but of, of bad faith. So it's almost, I mean, I hate to talk about absolute staples, I don't have statistics to back that up, but it's far more frequent than one imagines, so that we always think, ah, oh, this is a period of decline, and there was once a period when, you know, people were uh, like Harry Truman's uh, plain speak. That's not true. So I think that's, that's one thing to think about. It. Right. Then the other issue, of course, is the fact that we now have a much more rapid response that occurs with the media and through the internet and through videos and whatever. So people don't get away with it as much. You know, in other words, I, I, I can't misrepresent what my opponent said if I have, you know, if he has a tape saying, no, this is what he said, and vice versa. So there are various ways in which this is why the media plays such a role, the journalism in particular, that we can uncover these kinds of falsehoods and force people to own up to them as well. So I think we now have both maybe proliferation of lies, the big lie, whatever, can be spread through the media, and people on the internet are often open to incredibly nonsensical things which they believe again and again and again, but also the ability to very, very quickly respond and to try to diffuse the uh, spread of a rumor. But certainly rumors, which are another example of a kind of lying, right. creating panics, creating all types of things, have occurred in the past in ways that are you know, remarkably uh, prevalent in almost any context. Are the media today doing a sufficiently good job in terms of uh, a standard <coughs> refrain, holding politicians accountable, being responsive, right. distinguishing between important mm -hmm. lies, if you will, right. and unimportant lies? Well, I'm also not a serious student in the media, and I would say that there's an alarm out there that uh, the patience to do serious investigative journalism is wearing thin. The money for you know sponsoring it is not as, uh, let's say, forthcoming as it once was. So that we now have soundbite journalism. We now have shorter attention spans. People don't want to read long articles. But every so often, you know, a piece will occur. I don't know, New York Times, The New Yorker, or uh, you know, on uh, Huffington Post, Politico, wherever, where somebody will have spent a lot of time investigating, and things will come out. So I would say there is also a premium placed on the scoop on showing that something really, you know, some politician did something that was uh, problematic. Now. Probably there's a lot of stuff that we don't get to see. I mean, this is, sure. you know. You can't measure that. And we, we don't know that. Right. So whether or not there are more things, you know, I begin to sound like Donald Rumsfeld, but things we, known we know. Known the known knowns <laughs> and the unknowns. So we, we, we don't really know if more terrible things are happening that we don't know about that journalism fails to alert us to, or whether or not it's doing a better job. I mean, I, I don't know how one would really show that. I mean, I think journalists, and I have great respect for serious journalists, are doing. Uh, you know, as best they can with certain circumstances, limited resources, uh, monopolization of media, and that's always an issue. You know, Murdoch and company kind of control the media is a problem. Um, but on the other hand, you know, I, I, I think that uh, there are people doing very creditable things to try to expose political, um, you know, chicanery. Right. I want to get back to this idea of the American right. myth lying, right. George Washington, the cherry tree, right. and all the rest of this. 
Is there a sense through your reading and your research that there are societies that have a greater tolerance, a greater understanding, a greater amount of sophistication, if you will, right. towards the necessity or the inevitability of lying in the public sphere? and America's different in this respect, or, or is it fairly the same across the board? Well, I think probably historically and in terms of different society, there have been moments in which people understood that uh, a certain amount of semblance, a certain amount of deception was uh, part of the social fabric and, you know, one played that game and, uh, you know, it's like corruption. Some societies, corruption is endemic and, uh, you know, we can be moralistic about it, but it, it functions in some way. Uh, it functions about badly, you know, but it also does function. Uh, and then there are other societies where there is a kind of, you know, purism that occurs. Uh, the Protestant Reformation in relation to Catholicism, a good example of that, in which one gets impatient with, you know, the indulgences of a church that was too uh, somehow self-absorbed and hypocritical about saving souls rather than, you know, living well. So there are moments when there is a kind of a purification campaign. Now, sometimes, you know, it can have pretty awful consequences. I mean, I, I, you know, this is hard for me to say anything serious about, but ISIS today, you know, this new, uh, very frightening movement, it's a movement for a kind of purification. You know, it's a movement for truth-telling uh, in which they show you videos of the horrors they commit. You know, they're not hypocritical. They behead people and they proudly show you the beheadings. So, you know, what does this mean? Well, it means that they feel that the previous I don't know what, uh, governments or societies were basically hiding truths and they will have, uh, you know, a, a clear distinction between who is faithful and who is not and uh, they will act according to their beliefs and they will be transparent, apparently, to, you know, the disgust of the rest of us about what they do. Just, just ISIS is a uh, you know, very instructive case of uh, a political um, phenomenon that we're still grappling, we don't know exactly what's going on, but to the extent that we can make sense of what they're doing, they are a purification movement in which they're very clear about purifying their own society of infidels, including other Muslims who don't conform to their version of Islam. And they're also, uh, in a way, truth-telling in allowing the media, rather sophisticated uh, use of the media, to show what they do, including the atrocities and horrors, the beheadings. So they're that, proudly truth-telling. So they, they are in-your-face truth-telling, yeah. you know, in the way that sometimes Hitler was also, you know, some people would argue, uh, not trying to dissemble, but told you what he was going to do and did it. So sometimes uh, that could be, uh, you know, not so much a virtue. And the other great example is Robespierre, who, of course, was against hypocrisy and was against, you know, corruption. Uh, he called himself the incorruptible. And the terror, to the extent that we understand the terror is uh, derived from his, uh, his ideas, the terror was a result of that. So uh, purity, truth-telling, um, incorruptibility, absoluteness, all that can lead to rather coercive effects. I mean, it comes back to the idea of the truth in politics being less of a uh, you know value than it is perhaps in other realms. Right. Uh, we should live with fallibility and with our own inability to know the truth of the capital T. Right, and I think this is equivalent to what you were saying before about the mistake, or at least one of the mistakes that Kant meant, uh, that Kant had, which is to say uh, the notion of imposing or developing uh, a law-like regularity on human behavior, right. a law-like regularity on morals. I talked, as I mentioned to you before, recently I talked to Mark Bevere, mm -hmm. who has very strong views about the necessary 
a historical contingency of politics. You mm -hmm. can't have these law-like structures, right. and right. that politics is an art of interpretation. Right. And it's it's these this gray area, which is an essential aspect of the human condition, right. an essential aspect of any group of. Uh, of humans or any society that we have, we're not going to be able to have these irrevocable, right. unbreakable laws right. that say, if this, then that, at right. least for all instances. But this also leads me to another point, looking at it somewhat from the other perspective, because um, you would talk about this idea of leakage from mm. the political mm. sphere to other right. spheres. Right. And so I want to talk about politics vis-a-vis -vis science, because you've mentioned okay. this a few times. Okay. So in science, at least the quest, and I think most scientists right. believe right. that there's a lot of validity to this, is there is this, uh, there is this effort towards converging right. upon the truth. And, and we've talked about the danger of looking at politics from mm -hmm. that perspective, and that it's mm -hmm. naive and in fact could have all sorts of negative repercussions if we start putting it in that fixed framework. But sometimes this, the, I think people understand that, generally, or at least most people most of the time do generally, to the extent that the leakage seems to go the other way. Mm -hmm. So here goes, here, here's the argument. So the argument is, journalists will say, um, journalists who cover politics will say, for example, well, we understand that people lie, we understand that people dissemble, we understand that that's an inevitable part of this type of behavior, political type mm -hmm. of behavior, and so there are always two sides to every story. Right. If right. I go and I hear right. this Republican right. say something, I right. know that he's saying something right. with an agenda, and the Democrats are right. saying something, so there is no objective right. truth that's out there. This drives scientists completely crazy, right. because the assumption is we can apply this rubric right. to, to other areas of, of, of inquiry, namely science. And for a scientist, that just ain't the way it is. Right. There aren't always two sides to right. every story, and you often get members of the populace represented sometimes by the media mm -hmm. to say, well, hang on, mm -hmm. you think that this mm -hmm. is a scientific result. We're going to find some guy right. In, right. You know, right. in the middle of nowhere who has his own particular right. theory, and we're going to give him equal time. Right. And I think this can really be pernicious because it's, it's, a, it's a lack of understanding mm -hmm. of the fact that these domains are mm -hmm. really very, very separate mm -hmm. and that there, there should really be less leakage than there inevitably is. Does that, does that resonate well, with you Well, it's a complicated issue because obviously some... Um, you know, let's say uh, interpenetration occurs in ways that uh, make us uh, wisely accept the Council of Science. Uh, and I mentioned climate change is one of those. Well, there's science as public uh, policy, and then there's science as science. Right, right. There's, there's a difference. Well, that's, that's also another interesting way to think about it. I mean, stem cell research, things of, of that sort. You know, should we, in fact, have a moral issue about stem cells or not is different from would stem cell research allow us to, uh, you know, solve uh, medical problems and so forth. Right. So there, there are two levels. Right. Uh, on the issue of whether or not science simply finds the truth and is monologic, its telos is that, its goal. But in fact, science often operates through a dialectic of different positions where people argue. Uh, and sometimes science is unsettled, and sometimes what we thought was the truth turns out to be false. Sure. So even scientists who have great confidence in what they're doing, if they're aware of the history of science, will know that people in the past had confidence and they got it wrong. Sure. So eugenics, or you know, think of many other examples of things that were once good science that we now are very, very nervous about. So even science is open, we might say, to dispute. Having said that, the protocols of the scientific method, the scientific community, the procedures of peer review and verification and so forth, as the, you know, much they are under pressure, and there are people like uh, my former colleague Paul Feyerabend who didn't take them seriously at all, 
nonetheless, they are more on the side of looking for a kind of disinterested truth uh, in which scientists, you know, they may get personal, uh, I don't know what, personal feelings of um, esteem from winning the Nobel Prize. They nonetheless are interested in figuring out a problem. Whereas in politics, there's always interest, there's always opinion, there's always spin. So there is a kind of tension between them, but a kind of, I would say, dialogue as well. Uh, the worst thing would be to create a model of politics uh, uh, in the, uh, we might say, uh, image of science, in which there are uh, an elite of people who have the tools, the background, the training, the credentials to tell us what to do. I mean, Walter Lippmann and other people in the 1920s thought this was the way we should go, a kind of technocratic politics in which only somehow the people who really know uh, should, uh, you know, somehow help the rest of us figure out what we should do. Right. I mean, Ergen Habermas, who is a great uh, inspiration in many of the, you know, respects for my work, uh, and is not a believer, I would say, in the, the virtues of lying much, nonetheless argues that in the process of enlightenment, we're all participants. That there's no elite that tutors the rest of us. There's no, uh, you know, uh, expert credential group that can tell us what we should do. You know, they give advice, but they can't tell us what we should. So I think this is crucial about science. That science, part of the conversation, and the scientists put on two different caps. When they enter the political realm, there are political scientists, Linus Pauling, people like that, uh, you know, who tried to argue for a certain position. But uh, they have to recognize that they also are participants in the debate. They bring their expertise, but we bring, sure. you know, as non-scientists, our own interests and our own judgments as well. So. It's a, it's a dialogue rather than uh, one group dominating the other. And I think scientists are wrong if they get impatient with politics because it's messy. Uh, they ought to understand what politics is and not see it in the model of, uh, of science. Right. So I certainly agree with that. I, I guess my, my point is uh, there are two things going on, as you've pointed out. I mean, one is science as itself and the public perception of what the scientific practice is, which is to say... Uh, uh, this idea of an objective convergence upon some sense of, of truth. Um, and I think, I think that that's true. Uh, I, I can qualify it, and I will qualify mm -hmm. it going in, in subsequently. But I, I think that that's true. And I think that if you just look around you in, in the age mm -hmm. in which we find ourselves, what separates us from a multitude of other civilizations and societies and so forth is our awareness and our harnessing of objective scientific mm -hmm. truths. Right. Um, so I don't think that's true in all instances and all the rest right. of that, but I think as a general rule of thumb, there's a lot to be said for it. On the other hand, science is an activity which is being practiced by human beings. Right. And as right. such, they are subject to the same distortions and megalomania and, right. and, and clan mentality and all right, the rest sure, of that that other sure, human beings sure, do. Sure. So, but I think one has to distinguish. I think one has to distinguish between the process and the outcomes, which deserve to be uh, regarded on their own merits, right. and the individuals who are lobbying for this or that or the mm -hmm. other thing. And what's interesting to me is that there's also this public sphere of okay, here are these scientific truths, or at least the best mm -hmm. knowledge that we have at the current time. What can we we do about that. Mm -hmm. How can we implement that? How can we mm -hmm. link that to the, to the to the public milieu, right. to the public domain in terms of policy? But I guess my argument is what's important to recognize is that when when we say here is the scientific consensus, that's different 
than when we say, here is the political consensus. Mm -hmm. It's really, it's, mm -hmm. a, it's, a, it's a, right. a horse of a different color. Right. It doesn't mean that it's necessarily the truth. As you say, often the people go down the wrong road mm -hmm. and what is the consensus mm -hmm. today may not be the consensus mm -hmm. tomorrow. But it has a much higher likelihood. Of right. <laughs> being no, I, I think it's, it's, as I said earlier, kind of truth discourse in yeah. which the goal is somehow to suspend your own private interests, your own private opinions, values, background, and to have a kind of collective subject, the scientific community, come up through its various vetting processes, which are supposedly disinterested, you know, blind peer review, that kind of thing, uh, verification through replication, all of that. Exactly producing a different outcome from political experiment, we might say, which is much more uh, real world than fraught. Now there is though, on a meta level, a very interesting issue of whether or not always telling the truth, always seeking the truth, is necessarily uh, in the service of humankind. So the great example of this is the unleashing of atomic uh, energy. And of course the scientists who worked on the Manhattan Project, some had second thoughts afterwards. You know, should they have gone down that route? Sure. Was this simply seeking the truth or was it a pack with the devil? And so there's some ways in which we make decisions about which science we support, which science, which truth telling we, you know, try to uh, pursue. Uh, you know, and a lot of this is uh, a question of scarce resources. I mean, how much money we give to this project? How much money we give to another project? Should we try to uh, land on uh, Mars or should we try to cure cancer? So there are lots of issues in which truth telling is always already, we might say, embedded in other human, uh, you know, uh, concerns. But I, I agree that there is an interesting tension between them, and I think that's a good thing. I and mean, I think this is once again the issue of the boundary or lack thereof between the political and others. So politics is in relation to various things, and sometimes those other things are politicized. So who gets the Nobel Prize in physics may not sure. be a fully disinterested. It could be. You but know, that's not science. But that's not science. But you know, it also involves funding and various things, and you sure. know, that's and science. Not science either. Well, we have this ideal of science. I mean, you could yeah. say that's not the pure pol political. I mean, no, it's science is always both this disinterested pursuit right. and what, you know, uh, historians and sociologists of science, science studies people, tell us it really is, you know, which may be certain credential people operating in certain not so disinterested ways. I mean, there's this mixture of the ideal and the real. Right. And I wouldn't say that we should collapse one into the other. We shouldn't go either down or up. Uh, but it's different from the way the political operates, but and yet they're interpenetrated. So, right. you know, it's it's more complex than any single rule of thumb which we talk about political or scientific. The interpenetration exists, but without the collapse. Let me let me uh, sum up. Uh, you've been very generous with your time, so thank you very much. But let me let me sum up with a, a question about your awareness of not so much lying, but the political project through the course of this research, through the course right. of doing this work. Have you been surprised by things? Have you had a developed a deeper understanding about some things? Has this has this enabled you to to look at at some of these uh, more profound sociological philosophical issues from a different perspective? Well, I think something like this alerts you to things you intuited before, which is that um, there is no uh, single normative notion of politics, and that. In the 60s, I grew up in the 60s, there was a sense of the expansion of politics. I mentioned the personal as the political, politics from below, politics in the streets, politics outside of represented democracy, politics outside of parties, politics that 
you know, somehow had an impact on the system but didn't fully overthrow or change or revolutionize the system. So politics uh, expands, it contracts, it has no, uh, you know, I would say uh, simple understanding of what it does and, uh, you know, democracy is um, always uh, en route. Uh, I was also fascinated by the way in which the attempt to isolate the political, Carl Schmitt, Hannah Arendt and others, uh, has its virtues but also its limits and that we can understand the political as itself relatively but not absolutely autonomous and in relation to other human endeavors uh, such as science or religion or morality or economics or you can talk about other let's call it subsystems of the whole which have their relative autonomy so that in complex differentiated societies the political has its own momentum its own institutions its own protocols, its own internal, uh, we might say, dynamic, and yet it is also in conversation with, penetrated by, and sometimes beholden to other uh, dimensions of uh, the world. And so uh, this is ongoing. There's no, there's no final formula. And uh, I was very interested in the, let's say, complexities of the moral issues that uh, this kind of research raised. Um, you know, the things are not often as simple as you assume at the beginning of the game. And, you know, this is not to say you're paralyzed and, you know, can't operate because you end up with so much complexity that everything is a bad uh, alternative, but it gives you some sense of how difficult it is to be certain about the choices you made. Were you surprised by anything? Did anything come up that you thought, oh, gosh? Uh, well, was I surprised? I mean, I, I guess I, I, I didn't fully anticipate having to parse the various versions of the political when I began. You know, I thought, well, lying in politics, I kind of know what politics is. And it turns out I had to do much more uh, digging into the various versions of the political and even then only scratch the surface. So I think that was kind of fun to, to then say, well, before you talk about lying in politics, you have to really understand what, what politics, the political, what, you know, democracy, what all these various versions of politics, international, domestic, adversarial, collaborative, all of them entail, and how they then interface with questions about lying. So it becomes, you know, let's say a series of moving targets rather than a single, you know, uh, fixed one. So that was kind of exciting. I mean, I, I like both complexity and the ability to make some sense of it without, I hope, reducing it to its uh, simplest uh, dimensions. Right. And although you're not interested in reducing things to their simplest dimensions, and we're not interested in reducing things to their simplest dimensions, that notwithstanding, if you had to reduce things to their simplest dimensions and give a two or three word, two or three sentence encapsulation for the average person on the street in terms of what their sensitivity should be uh, with respect to lying in politics, what would it be? I think the, the one package, the one lesson that comes out of it is to be more attentive to the substantive issues and less concerned with the character and truth-telling self-pretensions, we might say, of the person who is, uh, you know, basically defending them. That sometimes scoundrels produce, you know, good outcomes, and sometimes pious, well-intentioned people produce lousy outcomes. So one has to be aware of the fact that the person who says, you know, beating his chest that I am the truth teller, I am authentic, the other guy is the liar, uh, may be basically leading us down, uh, you know, a garden path. So that. Uh, not not to say the character counts for nothing, but we shouldn't vote for saints. We should vote for people who will, you know, produce outcomes that are more beneficial than those that are not. And that's more important, substance than style. Um, 
And I don't think that's cynical. I mean, I think it's you know an awareness no. of how politics works for us and how it lubricates a system in which there is no single truth and which character uh, is part of the equation but not uh, the entire equation. No, it doesn't sound cynical at all, but it sounds dangerously verificationist. So it seems like you're moving towards a science after well, all. Well, it, it's pragmatist in a, in a broad sense. That it's, I'm interested in outcomes, and uh, unintended consequences are the name of the game. And so one has to be aware of intentions, take them seriously. We have them ourselves. We hope for good outcomes. But be aware of the context and the um, complexities of where those intentions might lead. And, and therefore not always go, you know, with uh, the surface of uh, uh, the, the alleged uh, sort of authentic uh, politician who tells you what, you know, his character is like and explains everything from his own good heart and, uh, you know, basically demonizes the others, the, uh, you know, the phony, the liar, the hypocrite, the uh, scoundrel. So. Wonderful. Anything I didn't ask? Anything you want to uh, comment on? No, we, we covered a lot of territory. That was fun. I hope you enjoyed this reformatted podcast. As mentioned at the outset, this conversation is also available both as an individual ebook and as part of the ebook and paperback Conversations About the History of Ideas, along with separate discussions with Stefan Collini, Darren McMahon, Pankish Mishra, and Quentin Skinner. Those interested in more information about Ideas Roadshow are directed to ideasroadshow.com. For those who are curious about me and other projects I'm involved in, are recommended to visit howardburton.com. Thanks very much for listening, and I hope you'll tune into another Ideas Roadshow podcast on the New Books Network soon. We release a new one each Wednesday.